Wrapping up the Gospel of Matthew, maybe tonight, we'll see. In chapter 26, we saw as Jesus was being scourged, as he, uh, the, the Jewish leaders were questioning him, bringing phony witnesses, what they were doing, they had their own little government within the, the you know, that had authority from the Romans, but at the same time, they had limited authority. They weren't allowed to give the death penalty. And so they wanted to build up enough of a case that then they could take it to Pilate, the Roman um, regent who was over that area at the time, and hopefully get the death penalty for Jesus. This was how much they hated him and had turned on him. And so after, they couldn't come up with much, but it was obvious that he's claiming to be God, the Messiah. And you'd figure Pilate wouldn't care that much about it. There's probably not a Roman law against it, but it was the best they could come up with. And so now we see in chapter 27 that he's handed over to Pilate. And so it says, when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Judas, who had just sold him out hours before, when he realized, and, and I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but he realized, boy, they're taking him into the Roman courts. They're, they're really serious about it. Maybe it reminded him of when Jesus had just that week washed his feet had handed him the communion. And Jesus, who had been so kind to Judas, and as Judas asked, am I the guy who's going to betray you? And Jesus said, yeah, you are. Judas, he must have had some weird thoughts going through his head, knowing that for some reason he was trying to cash in on the fact that people wanted to destroy Jesus. But thinking back on all those times when Jesus reached out to him in love, when Jesus touched him and held him, when Jesus ministered to him and fed him and encouraged him and taught him, and thinking, wow, he knew it was me. He knew that I was the one who would be betraying him. And so his conscience got to him to a degree, unfortunately, never really repenting as far as we know, but he felt bad about what he had done. And so it says that he went before, he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and elders and said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what do we care? That's your problem. They didn't want the money back, and he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. Notice how they get really religious in some areas, but they don't mind killing an innocent person. They consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. That is the day Matthew was written. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, we have a couple of interesting issues in this story of Judas. One of them is that here in Matthew, it says that Judas hanged himself. But as we see over in Acts chapter 1, 
and you can turn over there. Sometimes people will bring this issue up and, and question you about it. In Acts chapter 1, as they're waiting to choose a replacement for Judas and um, talking about what happened to him, it says in verse 16 of Acts 1, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his guts gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So they're reciting here and quoting prophecy in the Old Testament that you've still got the field of blood, but they're saying that he took the money, purchased the field, and then somehow he fell in the field and, and was splattered all over the place. And on the surface, this looks like it could be a problem. Wait a minute. Matthew says he hanged himself and that the scribes went and purchased a field with the silver. And, and Luke tells us in, in the book of Acts that he actually splattered on this field and, and the field was purchased with the money. You can see that obviously they agree and that the money was used to purchase the field. The 30 pieces of silver purchased the field. Probably what the deal is, is that he probably hung himself. Well, I'm sure he did because Matthew says he did. Hung himself at this field. And then when, because of the fact that the Sabbath was coming and nobody would want to leave him there, but nobody really wanted to deal with the body, they probably cut him down or perhaps the rope broke. And as he fell down over this cliff where he hung himself, he splattered and made a mess. And when they were trying to figure out what to do with the 30 pieces of silver, they were going, well, let's just make that little field where he killed himself a tribute in a way to him. We'll use the money to purchase this field and we'll name it the field of blood and they'll allow poor people who can't afford graves to be buried there as well. So that's most likely how the whole scenario went down. It's not a problem. It's not a conflict. You know, if, if Luke and Acts had made up this story, he would have made it up and put it in his Gospel of Luke as well. And, and uh, certainly with the, you know, with when by the time Matthew was written, People see these things that seem to be contradictions, by the way, and there are several of them that we see in the Gospels, and they begin to question the integrity of the Gospel writers, and they say, see, they messed up. Luke thought he died in a field. Well, how are you going to get splattered in a field anyway? But, you know, they say, see, it says that, and this says Judas hanged himself. It was the same field, and that was consistent, but... But they begin to nitpick and find contradictions. The truth is, if you had four Gospels that told everything exactly the same way from the same perspective, it would be clear what people would think. Well, they copied each other. One of them made up the story and the other guys copied it. See, there are already, there's this idea that the other Gospels copied from Mark. Because they sit there and they write down everything that they say that's exactly the same. And they say, wow, look how much Luke says that Mark also says. Therefore, Luke must have copied from Mark. 
But then they don't know what to do with the passages that Luke has that Mark doesn't have or that Matthew has that Mark doesn't have. The point is, if they say the same thing, it sounds suspect. And if they say something different from a different perspective, then they squawk about, you know, contradictions. The truth is, and if you've been, if you're in law enforcement or or if you ever watch enough TV, you realize that when two witnesses tell the exact same story, you don't say, oh, this is great. We have two witnesses that saw it exactly the same way. They confirm each other. The fact is, if you have two witnesses that see it exactly the same way, you know they've been talking to each other. It's the only way it happens because when two people see the same event, and much less many other people, they're going to see different aspects of it. And in order to get the total picture, you cross-check all the stories and you can come up with a, an explanation that fits for all of them. You can have several people telling the same story, telling it differently, and still have each of them being accurate. They're telling it based on what they saw. They're giving an aspect of it. And so we see that quite a bit here, even in these two chapters that we're looking at tonight. And this is a case where you need to listen to all the stories in order to get the full picture. And they really don't contradict. There's never any place in the Bible where you say, it can't be both of these. You just need to do what's called harmonizing them, seeing how they fit together. Another problem here in this Judas passage, though, is it says in verse 9, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and then it has the quote. Problem is, the quote's not from Jeremiah. The quote's from Zechariah, nearest we can tell. It's not a word-for-word -word quote, but it's very close to a quote from Zechariah 11. And so again, people look at it and say, well, wait a minute. It says Jeremiah said it, and this is a fulfillment of his prophecy, but actually, Zechariah said it. And so what's the deal? And there, I don't know what the perfect solution is, but several have been proposed. You can, you can take your choice. None of them caused me to think about dumping my salvation. It's possible that there was a scribal error, and at one point it, the name was changed and that in the original it said Zechariah. That's one possibility. We don't have a lot of solid evidence for that. Another possibility, good possibility, I think, is that Maybe because Jeremiah um, wrote before Zechariah, but they were close to contemporaries, it could be that Jeremiah made this prophecy first, and when Zechariah in Zechariah 11 was quoting it, because it's not an exact quote, he may have been quoting something that Jeremiah had written that um, you know we just don't have in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied a lot more than just what we have in the Bible. There are actually, there's an apocryphal book that was supposedly written by Jeremiah that actually has this quote in it. So perhaps he actually said it, um, and we just don't have it in the scripture. Another possibility that people have pointed out is when the, when the Jews put the pro book of prophets together as a scroll, often Jeremiah was the first one, and then other prophets sequentially after Jeremiah because of the historicity and everything. And so because Jeremiah was the first one, they would often call that whole scroll the scroll of Jeremiah. And that's, that could have some validity. And, and there are people who have suggested that 
as he's saying Jeremiah, he's saying it's in the scroll of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Jeremiah, even though Jeremiah didn't write all of them. We do that today by lumping the Psalms together and, and acting as if they're just one book, and it could be that there were other contributors to it. Another possibility is that Jeremiah actually wrote part of the book of Zechariah. We don't know. It's, it's a possibility. So... You can take your choice between any of those or you can try to make up your own. The obvious thing, the thing that impresses me, just like when gospel accounts differ, I say, wow, they didn't try to match them up. Nobody doctored the testimony. No one told them what to say. Here, it causes me to have great faith in the text because for whatever reason, Jeremiah is credited for a quote that, that we see mostly in Zechariah chapter 11, yet they didn't fix it. Now, if, if the gospel writers were trying to concoct some sort of a plot, if they were trying to collude, make up stories, make them all fit together, it's one of the things they would have fixed, but they never did. Or most of the time they didn't. There, there are certain versions of the New Testament, certain translations, the Syriac and the Coptic and a couple others, where it actually says Zechariah here, where somebody did fix it. But for the most part, they left it the way it was, and I like that. I'm glad that they didn't mess with it. For me, I'll believe it's true. I'll think there's one of these explanations or another one will explain it. I'm certainly not going to throw my Bible away because of, you know, was it Zechariah or Jeremiah? Now in verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Yeah, he said, basically. He hadn't been saying anything up until this point. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. But Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you, all of these charges? And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. He was going, I can't believe you're not going to defend yourself. Pilate didn't have an axe to grind against Jesus at all. But he was just going, come on, you got to help yourself out. you got to help me out. Give me some sort of an excuse to cut you loose. Defend yourself. And he was amazed. Of course, the Old Testament had prophesied that as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom, he, whom they wished. They had this little deal where if there was a popular prisoner who the people would like, they could, cut, they could turn him loose. It was just something that Pilate did to, to gain favor with the people. And Pilate was the consummate politician. He was just worried about pleasing people. He didn't care about what was right or wrong. I'm not saying all politicians are this way, just most. You know, not, not driven by any kind of feeling of what's the right thing to do. It's just simply pragmatism, what works, what'll help, what's going to curry favor with the people. Instead of being a leader and saying, this isn't right and we're not going to do it. Instead, you know, going, okay, which way is the wind blowing? It seems like in the same way that today politicians, before they tell you what they believe, check the polls. They want to know what the people think, and that tells them what they're supposed to think. It's why during the gubernatorial recall election, Arnold didn't have a whole lot to say. 
He didn't, they asked him what he thought about different things and he hadn't really thought about it because he hadn't had time in a quick election like this to actually have all these pollsters tell him what he's supposed to think and feel and believe. And so he was left just as himself, a guy who has spent most of his life just reading a script and playing the part of a character. It's kind of refreshing to me that the guy knew enough to admit, I don't know. And so not a big Arnold booster at the same time. I'm just, it's funny about politics that way. That people, instead of becoming leaders, they become absolute followers. They, their opinions will shift based on the polls this week. Their ideas will change. We've seen politicians who do radical changes in terms of, in terms of um, you know, even changing political parties and things like that, changing convictions. You have people now running, you know, as Democrats. Wesley Clark, who's running as a Democrat for president, and when he was a Republican, he was a big booster of all the conservatives. You have even people like Al Gore and Bill Clinton, who are, you know, radical um, feminists with their agenda and things like that. And both of them at one point, for instance, were strongly anti-abortion. They both wrote letters pro to the pro-life movement saying that they, this is a conviction that they have. Well, what happened? Did they learn something that changed that? Did, did somehow their heart change because they just felt like, oh, I guess it isn't a big deal? No, it's just they read the polls. Uh-oh, you're not going to get the female vote unless you unless you change your position. And so now their convictions, their deeply held beliefs, they've changed. Not from information, it's not like they were little kids, they were, they were politicians, lifetime career politicians when they were pro-life and, and now they're as adamantly pro-choice. It's not, there hasn't been new information. In fact, all of the evidence that's come out since their position would certainly move you towards a pro-life stance. There hasn't been anything that would cause you to suggest that that baby is less than a baby. So. This is what politicians do, and we see, I don't want to get off on a whole political rant, we see Pilate in the same kind of way. So they had this deal where they could release one prisoner, and at the time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. This guy was such a dirtbag, everyone hated him. And so Pilate thinks, oh, this will be cool, I'll let Jesus off just by giving him a choice. But I mean, here's this teacher who's seems harmless and he's healed people and and boy they were just worshiping him a few days ago and here's this guy who's just a complete criminal and I'll give him a choice and he said when they gathered together Pilate said to them who do you want me to release to you Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy he knew it was just a personal thing while he was sitting on the judgment seat though while all this was going on his wife sent a message to him and said, don't have anything to do with that just man, Jesus, that good guy. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. I had a dream. Leave him alone. The chief priests and elders, though, were persuading the multitude all this time that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so the governor said, okay, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate goes, oh, man. You know, what am I going to do now? How am I going to explain this to my wife? And Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. Of course, it was an organized sort of protest. It was probably just a handful of people who were there. It's not like the whole nation would be there, you know, at this time while he was being questioned. They wouldn't even have access. So certain people that were allowed in there were going, you know, just kill him, kill him. And the governor said, why? 
What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, what do you mean, not prevail at all? All he had to do was say no. But he knew he couldn't do that. So he was out of tricks. He had done the Barabbas thing. He had, you know, and so now it's like, boy, I'm, I guess I do. I am kind of with you guys. It says that, that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And so he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate, not wanting to, he's the one ultimately, it's his authority that caused Jesus to be crucified. But at the same time, he was going, I don't want to do this. I'm just doing it because it's politically correct. And I just want you guys to know, I don't feel good about this, but we're going to do it. If this is what you want, this is what we're going to do. The exact opposite of what a leader should be. When we, in leaders, we need people who will tell us things that we don't want to hear. We need people who will confront us with our own failures and shortcomings and go, you don't have to be this way. But so often in society, the leaders that rise to prominence, they got there by compromise and they will be responsible. I don't care if he says he washes his hands of it. It doesn't matter. He, he's still accountable, as are all the people who were involved in this movement. You know, with Mel Gibson's new movie, The Passion, there's a big controversy because uh, there are people who are concerned and saying, you know, that, oh, this is going to bring about a lot of anti-Semitism because the movie makes it look like the Jews killed Jesus. The truth is, everyone chipped in. You can't completely say the Jews had nothing to do with it, obviously, but it wasn't all the Jews. It was these leaders that were conspiring against him. But at the same time, you can't say the Romans didn't have anything to do with it because just because Pilate washed his hands of it and turned him over and, and proclaimed the death sentence but said, I don't feel good about this, he's still responsible. He was a leader. He was in that position. The truth is, though, not only did you and I contribute because of our sins. It was all, it, we were the ones who sent him to the cross. But also the Bible tells Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it willingly. And so ultimately you need to spread it around. Yeah, the Jews contributed, the Romans contributed, all of us contributed, and ultimately Jesus, well, in a way it was suicide. It was him laying his own life down. And so here Pilate, as an example of somebody who would not stand up for what's right. He spoke up for what's right. He just wouldn't stand up for what's right. He had the right, you know, opinion. He, but he just knew that if he did what his heart was convicting him to do, that it would be unpopular. And so he just weaseled out of it the best he could. And, and uh, he's still responsible. And unfortunately, God actually spoke to him through his wife having this dream. And he wouldn't listen. I don't know what would have happened if the people had said, yeah, let Jesus go. Go ahead and kill Barabbas. I don't know what would have happened if Pilate had put his foot down and said, no way. I'm not going to kill a guy who's innocent. Jesus still was going to have to die. And it was all a fulfillment of prophecy. But that doesn't change the fact that the people who are responsible had a hand in doing something that was completely wrong. 
Now it says, they, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross. Now, we know that Jesus carried his own cross from looking at the other gospels for a period of time, but as he was heading <coughs> down that Via Dolorosa and moving toward his death, at some point, because he had already been beaten a lot and scourged and all, he was probably physically unable to continue to carry the cross, so they got Simon the Cyrene to begin to carry it. They compelled him to bear the cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, it's probably called that place of the skull because if you've been to Israel, you've seen the cliff on the side of the hill where we believe Jesus was killed looks kind of like a skull, the face of it. It's getting destroyed now. There's a bus station down at the bottom of it, and there's some question of different vandalism, possibly even some either Jewish people or Arab people, both of whom would have good reason to not have it be such a great tourist site, um, have been digging and creating problems there. But still to this day, you can look at it, and you don't have to use your imagination very much to see that it looks like a skull. So they took him to this hill. It was out Outside the walls of Jerusalem. There are all sorts of different traditional sites, but this is probably the most obvious because there's a garden right there, there's a tomb right there, and it's just outside of Jerusalem, which is where he would have had to have been crucified. And so it says they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. This would have been something, they weren't just trying to be mean, it was actually something that should deaden the pain. But when he had tasted it, he wouldn't drink. So he went ahead and tasted it, but he wouldn't drink it. And the reason, I think, is pretty clear. He wasn't going to soften the impact of the pain that he had to feel for us. It was important that he suffer in the way that he did. It's not just him dying. You think, well, if all he had to do was die for our sins, then why didn't they just do it nice and humanely? Why couldn't they just put him out of his misery quickly. Why the hours of torture and torment? But it's, because, it's by, Isaiah tells us, it's by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And so, for some reason, and we don't understand exactly why, Jesus had to take all of the torture that he endured for us. And as a result, he refused to, to anesthetize himself. And so as he saw what it was they were giving him, he gave it back. And it says, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. And that was a fulfillment of the prophecy. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And that was in Psalm 22, that incredible messianic psalm where he also says, you know, what he says later here, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he, he had this one-piece garment, we know from comparing the other Gospels. And so they began to, they, they were dividing up his clothes, but then this one-piece garment that he wore over the outside was something they said it would be a shame to cut it in half. And so they cast lots to see who would win that. And so they crucified him. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. They just kind of sat down and, you know, there he was nailed to the cross. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They were putting it up there partly to ridicule him. They had planted a crown of thorns on his head and things like that. And, but 
Also, this was the charge against him, that he claims he's a king, that he claims he's the king of the Jews, that he claims he's the Messiah. And so this title they put over his head, completely true, but that was the charge that was against him. And so they put this sign above his head. Now, each of the Gospels gives a little different version of the sign. They don't contradict each other. But, you know, here in Matthew, you have this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In Mark, it says the king of the Jews. In Luke, it says this is the king of the Jews. And in John, it says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So if you put it all together, what the whole sign said most likely was this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. See, it's not a contradiction to say it says the king of the Jews. Yeah, that's what it said. But it also said this is Jesus of Nazareth to say this is Jesus, king of the Jews, totally accurate too, just left out the word Nazareth. Each person either emphasizing or seeing a different aspect of it. It wasn't printed out on a laser printer. And so, you know, and most of the guys that wrote these were a distance off. But when you put them all together, you can see what it said. Now, you may have heard there are some interesting, um, there are some people who have said that what was written on the cross, when it was written in Hebrew, that as the words were written down, that if you looked across the edge, the, the initial consonants spelled out Yahweh, spelled out the consonants for the word Jehovah. It's a great story. I wish it were true because it's cool. I mean, I, I'm tempted to promote it anyway. Chuck Missler put it in one of his books, and I've heard other people saying this too, but it's it's just not valid at all. The, any, any of the gospel accounts of what it says, there's no way that you can take those Hebrew words and have it spell out the four consonants for the personal name of God. The way that they make it fit is they take, you know, the, the simplest form of what was written there, and then they say, they change it and say, Jesus from Nazareth. They ignore the word Nazareth and say it must be on the same line with from. Well, none of the four Gospels even says from Nazareth, uses that word. So it's a typical thing where preachers get carried away to, for, to make something interesting. And the truth is, you know, don't go share that with your Jewish friends um, because it's not, it's not valid at all. Um, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. I wish he had in a way, except he had to stay up there. He was going to have to die anyway, but I would have loved to have seen their faces. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, it says here he was crucified with a thief on either side of him. And, and here, as it says, two robbers were crucified with him in verse 38. And then in verse 44, even the robbers were there making fun of him and reviling him. And later, though, it, Luke's gospel records that one of the thieves ended up turning on the other thief and going, hey, knock it off, man. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. And realizing who Jesus was, then Jesus, the, the one thief said to Jesus, 
remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. And so by looking at the two gospels together, we realize at first, this thief, just like his buddy, just like the scribes and Pharisees and everyone else, chief priests, all making fun of him. But there was something about the way that Jesus was dealing with his predicament with such dignity and silence and not reacting, not yelling out. They couldn't get him to argue. And somehow this one guy's heart was touched. And it's, it lets us know that it's never too late as long as you have breath. You can, have, you can spend your whole life as a thief and then even there, you know, making fun of Jesus and putting him down. And if at any point... You say, remember me. Jesus will say, hey, no problem. You're in. This day you'll be with me in paradise. I'm so glad that that's true. I'm so glad that it doesn't come to a point where then, sorry, you've done too much. And certainly this guy should have been at that point if there was such a point. If anyone could commit an unpardonable sin, it should be a guy who did what he did. And yet Jesus didn't say, nope, that's an unpardonable sin. He said, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin until you're dead. And if you die rejecting me, yeah, that's an unpardonable sin. There's nothing that can be done about that. But in this case, we see this beautiful picture of a guy who repents. It makes me sad that Judas didn't actually repent and cry out and ask for forgiveness. But instead, <clears throat> feeling bad about himself, feeling sorry for himself and for Jesus, he just went and took his own life and was lost for eternity, I believe. I mean, theologians debate about that but here a guy all he had to do was cry out to Jesus remember me and he was saved and that's pretty cool it lets us know among other things that you don't have to be baptized to be saved because I'm sure he wasn't I don't see how it could have happened and yet Jesus said you're you're covered I got gotcha. you I'll take you with me and so it says now from the sixth hour which would have been noon until the ninth hour, for three hours, there was darkness over all the land from 12 to 3. That was kind of an amazing thing. And about the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was, by the way, the time when the Passover, this was on the Passover, and this was the time when the Passover lamb would have been killed, right there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, who probably didn't know Aramaic, when they heard it said, this man is calling for Elijah, because he was saying, Eli, Eli, which is Aramaic for, my God. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus was sacrificed at that point. The, as he faced taking our sins upon himself, the real horror, he didn't utter a word. He didn't make a complaint. He didn't, you know, wince in pain as far as we know at all the beatings and all of the cruelty and, the, and the, just the, the way that they treated him. He, he, they couldn't get a reaction. But when he knew that he was taking upon himself your sins, my sins, being separated then from fellowship with the Father for the first time in all of eternity, he cried out. My God, why have you forsaken me? 
he wasn't asking why in terms of can you give me a theological explanation for it? It was the cry of his heart, recognizing, realizing that, boy, what a horrible thing that all of a sudden I'm out of fellowship with the Father. And it, he wasn't asking a question that he expected an answer to. He was just honestly crying out. And I, and I think for us often, how do we look at it if we're out of fellowship with God? If we sense that, boy, I don't know, my relationship's been slipping, I haven't spent time with God for a while, I've been sinning and kind of excusing it, often for us it, be, it anesthetizes us and we get to where we don't feel much anymore. We get to where we form a habit that's sinful and God maybe convicts us and we just decide, nah, I'm going to still do it. And then as we do that, as that's our response, we become hard. Jesus was feeling it completely and totally. There wasn't any part of him that was getting numb to this sin that he had to take on that was causing him to feel in any way like, oh, I'm out of fellowship with the Father. Eh, I get into it later. I mean, it's just going to be for a little while. And so it shows us not just how incredible Jesus is, but it also lets us know how hard our hearts can get. That being separated from the Father doesn't cause us to cry out, doesn't cause us to feel the horror of forsaking that fellowship with God. For us, sometimes it might make us feel a little better. For us, going through a tough time, just go, you know, I just need to drug myself a little bit to deal with this. I need to take a pill. I need to have a drink. I need to do an activity that'll cause me just to not feel it so much. But see, for him, the ultimate horror was bro broken fellowship. For us, broken fellowship becomes our escape sometimes. But remember, when we do that, then we are looking at him and going, yeah, I'll contribute. It's no big deal. Jesus, what's your problem? I mean, that's it. Yeah. Uh, hey, if you're being beaten and spit upon and everything, we could see it if you got kind of ticked off. But fellowship with the Father? Come on. Jesus, I've... I've made it a way of life. See, because we don't understand the kind of intimacy that he experienced with the Father. But that's the kind of fellowship that he wants us to have. God wants to work in us to draw us so close to him, to draw us close to each other. First John says, our fellowship that we have is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He wants to draw us into that intimacy in such a way that if we ever start to slip away, it just about kills us. That we're about ready to go. I'd rather die than to be out of fellowship with God. What that shows me is most of us, we have a long ways to go in appreciating and understanding what fellowship is really all about. How do you feel if you're going to miss church? Do you, do you ever feel like, oh, I, and, and I know many of you do, and some of you maybe don't, but feel like, oh, man, I so want to be with the body. I so want to enjoy that fellowship. I, I so want to worship God together with my brothers and sisters. And it just doesn't feel right if that's not happening. Is that your experience, or is it like, you know, hey, no big deal, um, like missing your favorite TV show? I'll videotape it and watch the tape later. I mean, is that kind of our attitude? Ignoring the fact that church isn't just about hearing teaching, it's about being together as a body and fellowshipping. For Jesus, that was everything. 
That's what he came for, so that we could have fellowship with God. That's the purpose of our existence, is to live in fellowship with him. And the only thing sadder than Jesus and seeing him and the fellowship with the Father being broken, the only thing sadder than that is seeing how easily we deal with the same thing, how we choose to go into it. He had to do it for us. We willingly break off fellowship. We willingly ignore spending time with God as he wants us to. But God's heart for us, God's heart for you and for me, is for us to draw closer and closer to him so that we will never even think about willingly breaking fellowship with our brothers and sisters or with him. And if that sounds like something you can't understand, and there are plenty of days when I don't get it, but if that's where our heart is, then God's telling us, you really aren't experiencing what I want you to experience. You need to enter into deeper fellowship in order to appreciate what it was that Jesus paid for, in order to really understand why Jesus died. It's not just to save you from hell. It's more than that. It's to give us fellowship with heaven. It's to give us fellowship with each other and with him. Fellowship is just, well, somebody has said fellowship is several fellows in one ship. It's just being together. It's, it's rejoicing in having something in common. It's appreciating our koinonia, our sharing. It's why we do, certain, like this Sunday, we're having our church picnic. And, oh, I haven't checked to see what football games are going to be on or whatever. And I, you know, but, but here, it's a chance just for us to be together. And if that just sounds kind of boring to you, if it sounds like, oh, great, last thing I want to do is go to a park with a bunch of Christians. You know, probably can't drink, probably can't smoke, probably can't sit around telling dirty jokes. There probably won't be a TV that has a football game on. I don't want to do this. You know, and when you came into church and they were passing out the little flyers to you, you're like, oh, man, I feel like Jehovah's Witnesses are hounding me. I don't, I don't want to do it. But see, all of that is, is emblematic, really, of the fact that we don't understand what fellowship is all about. Because Jesus, by denying himself the fellowship with the Father, he paid for you to have fellowship with others. It's not the four bucks that it costs to go park in the picnic. It's, it's, the, it's the price of his blood that he said, I'm doing this so that you can be together. I'm doing this so that you can just enjoy that fellowship that comes from being around the body. And I, you know, there are many people in the body of Christ who don't even want to be a part of the body. They just assume not hang out. They want to be anonymous. They want to be left alone. They want to be doing their own thing. That's not how it works. And to have that, you know, I'm just a lone wolf kind of a mentality about Christianity, you don't get it. You don't understand how important that fellowship is. And he says, you can't fellowship with me unless you're fellowshipping with others. In fact, the only way to fellowship with God really is to be in relationship with others. Not that spending time one-on-one -on -one with God isn't important. It's vitally important because it prepares us to have something to bring to the table when we share together in fellowship. But as Paul said, 
praying for the Christians in Ephesians, he says, I pray that you'd be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of God that passes knowledge. I know it's hard to get along with people. Believe me, there are many times, most times in my life when I just assume be by myself with a good book than to be forcing conversation with people. It's hard. For some of us, it's just not our character. It's not our personality. But God says that that's what you're alive for. And so you have to stretch yourself. You have to push yourself. But I'll tell you this. I couldn't possibly know God the way I know him if it wasn't for other people. If it wasn't because of the times every day when I'm touched by either my concern for someone else's need or their love expressed to me or just as I'm praying for them and feeling that I have a place in what they do, that sense of, wow, God, you're so good in giving us Christians to be around. If it wasn't for that, I couldn't know God. You don't find him on your own. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus, as he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It shows us something of the heart of God that says fellowship is vitally important. And I don't want to lay a big guilt trip on you now. You know, it's like, you know, you killed Jesus if you don't come to the picnic or something. That's not it. But if your life is such that you're really not into being with other people, you're really not into fellowship, then I'd just suggest to you that there's a major truth in life that you haven't quite discovered. Oh, fellowship can be painful. Look at Jesus, the price he paid to have fellowship. That hurts. It can be awkward. You can get off to a bad start. You can come on too strong and offend people and lose your friends and have to kind of start over with another group. I know it's not easy. It's something that we have to learn. He didn't have to learn it. We do. But the thing is, it's the, it's the actual guts of what a walk with the Lord is. It's really what heaven is all about. It's not just about each of us being in our own little private booth, express, you know, experiencing the glory of God. Heaven is about being together with our Lord, fellowshipping with him. Some of those who stood there when they heard it thought he was calling for Elijah Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, verse 50. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That symbol of the division between God and man, now it was ripped. It was ripped open. And it says that, and by the way, it was torn from top to bottom because God was the one who tore it. This thing, for one thing, no man could ever tear it. It was very thick. For another thing, you wouldn't be able to reach the top in order to do it, even if you could. And so God did it, ripped it open. And then it says that as the veil was rent, the earth quaked, rocks were split. Three o'clock in the afternoon, graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It's not talking about just falling asleep. They were dead. They were in graves. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this is, frankly, one of the strangest passages in the Bible. A couple of things make it strange. They, they never show it in any of the movies about Jesus dying. I'm sure it's not going to be in Mel Gibson's movie either. It's only recorded in Matthew. The other Gospels don't mention it. And you've got to wonder, why, if something incredible like this happened, these people came out of the graves, mummies, you know, and they're walking around in Jerusalem, 
wouldn't Mark, Luke, John, wouldn't they even mention it? Wouldn't they go, oh yeah, and, the, and you know, the uh, return of the dead saints. Remember that? It's like only Matthew even mentions it. Also, there's another issue that people come because it's here when Jesus died that it says the graves open. But then it says they resurrected after Jesus resurrected because he was the first fruits of resurrection. So you think, What's, what is it? Is it his death or is it his resurrection? The clearest understanding of the passage is that the graves were open when Jesus died. Bodies exposed, but when he rose, then some of these people rose also and were able to go and testify. Sounds like a really weird story. And I think a lot of Christians are just even embarrassed by it. The Bible says it and I choose to believe it. I, there are people who go to great lengths to try to explain that it's not quite as weird as you would think. John MacArthur, for instance, says that their bodies were exposed, and so they started carrying the bodies around in the city, kind of like, you know, weekend at Bernie's sort of a thing, but they didn't actually come to life. And, you know, it's possible. I don't know. You know, you just don't read it and go, oh, yeah, obviously that's what happened. Um, you don't know how many of them. Exactly how did this happen? Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, so they may have been raised from the dead, some of them, and, and then uh, at that point lived a normal life and, and then died again and went to be with the Lord. That's probably what happened to Lazarus. We don't know of him being raptured or anything. He probably died twice, an exception to the basic principle that says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. There are some people, theologians, who believe that these people walked around with Jesus during the 40 days that he remained on the earth after his resurrection, and then they ended up floating up into heaven with him, or assumed with him, so they wouldn't have to die again. It doesn't say that. I don't know. I, I, I frankly don't know what to make of it completely. So I choose to just believe it the way it's written and not worry about being thought of as being strange or weird. It, there may be a more normal explanation for it. I don't know. There, it's one of those questions that um, I suppose when I get to heaven, it'll just be answered automatically. But I'm curious to, to know exactly what's the scoop with this thing. But again, if you were writing a, a book and you were trying to fool people, you're not going to throw something like this into it. The story is just weird enough that it could be true. <laughs> See, truth is always stranger than fiction. It's always things that actually happen are much weirder. It doesn't sound like something that somebody would make up. Now, there are some people who are suggesting that it was put in the text later, that it wasn't in the original. It's in the best manuscripts, and so I have a hard time with that too. But there it is. It says it happened, so I'd rather face Jesus and say, oh, and him go, it wasn't that. It was, why didn't you listen to MacArthur? I, I, would rather, I would rather have that happen than for Jesus to go, why didn't you believe it? I said it. I thought it was pretty clear. So I just choose to go with what's literal if it makes any sense at all. And this makes a little sense. So, you know, I, I just believe it. But you, you don't have to. Your salvation isn't going to hinge on it. And it is a strange passage and one that it'll give you a headache if you start reading all the commentaries on it and how people tap dance around this whole thing. So most people just ignore it. I, I've been in through the Bible studies where they just glossed it over completely, but I didn't want to do that. I don't want to answer the questions about it later. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. 
whatever happened with these graves, it was significant enough that, I mean, just an earthquake isn't going to freak somebody out enough to go, wow, he's really God. But if you see bodies being raised, that would get your attention. And, and so this is probably connected to it, along with the veil being ripped in half and, and the sun being darkened for three hours. Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, uh, Salome. So they were there looking on from afar. When evening came, a rich guy from Arimathea named Joseph came to Pilate and said, hey, I have a place I could bury the body. And he said, yeah, give him the body. He laid it in the new tomb, rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and left. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there hanging out opposite the tomb, kind of watching. And on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the day of preparation was the first day of Passover. And so this is the next day. Now, that doesn't mean it was in the morning. They probably wouldn't have done that at this point. This event probably happened after the sun went down, which then would be the next day. Because, the, well, I'll go ahead and read it. The chief priests and scribes gathered, and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate and said, hey, we remember when he was alive that he said, after three days I'll rise. So let's get a bunch of soldiers and make sure that the disciples don't come and steal him away and claim he's risen from the dead. That'll really cause a problem. So he said, yeah, go ahead and put the guard there. They didn't do this in the morning. It's remember in the Jewish system of, of calendars, it's the next day. It's at six o'clock. So they wouldn't have waited overnight. And then, and there are some people who say, oh, the body was probably stolen away before they did this the next day. No, to a Jew, the next day was just a couple hours later. And so it says, after the Sabbath, first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And there had been this earthquake, an angel came down and rolled the stone away. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. We looked at this passage on Sunday morning, and so if you want to go into it with detail, you can, you can grab that tape. At any rate, these women got the news. The Lord chose to speak to them. No one would have used women for something this important in those days. They just, they, they completely degraded the value of a woman, but God chose to speak to them as he did, as I pointed out, the bookends Christmas and Easter, Luke 2, the shepherds, the angels came and revealed the truth to the shepherds, told them not to fear. Same thing here. Coming to women, don't fear. Jesus is alive. And so as they went to tell, they met Jesus in verse 9, and he said, Rejoice. And they came and held on to him by the feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and, I, and there they will see me. Now, when you read the four Gospels and you see what happened with the women, the disciples coming to the tomb, the tomb is open, there's one angel, there's two angels, it can get kind of confusing. And there are people who take the accounts of the four Gospels and say, oh, they're so different, this is a contradiction. Again, a silly thing to do. It's, it's fairly reasonable that there would be different accounts from different angles. It's not very complicated to take all of them together and come up with one story that flows and fits as a, as a suggestion. If you want to see something like this so that you can see them all put together, there are all kinds of internet sites. If you, if you go on a search engine and say, Harmony of the Gospels, Resurrection, It'll come up with people who have come up with a lot of different suggestions. There's a book called Harmony of the Gospels by Dr. A.T. Robertson, the top 
American Greek scholar ever, and he does a good job of harmonizing them. There's a book called The Life of Christ in Stereo that takes the information from all the Gospels and puts them together. A lot of people have done it. It's just there was a lot of running around, and so it gets a little complicated, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing with you. But if you're concerned at all about that or interested, there's a lot of great information out there, and it's not a problem at all. There's no way that you'd look at it and go, oh, no, how can we do this? It's, it's just four different perspectives of a lot that was going on over a couple of days' time. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled, the guards had to explain why the body's gone, why the stones rolled away. They were there in order to guard it. And when they got together with the elders and they consulted together, the elders gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They said, look, we're going to pay you off. Tell people that the disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So he's going, look, we'll pay you to tell the story that a whole battery of soldiers just dozed off. And the disciples came and got him out of there. And, and they would go, what? We would be killed if you ever, if something like that happens, you'd be killed. And they said, don't worry, we'll pay them off too. We'll appease them. Everything will be fine. Let's just tell this story. And it's a, it's a lame story. There's no way that they're all going to be asleep, not wake up while disciples, it would take several of them to roll a stone like that away because the way they would build them, the stone rolls downhill when it covers the grave. Not easy to roll it up the hill in order to open it up. Um, there are other people who have come up with other lies. Uh, you know, years ago, a guy wrote the, the Passover plot, it was called, and, and he suggested that Jesus had just passed out on the cross, wasn't really dead, woke up, realized what was happening. Somehow, even being wrapped up in all these cloths, he was able to hop over to the door and lean on the stone and roll it away and sneak by hundreds of soldiers and, you know, ridiculous. I mean, the resurrection is so much easier to believe than some of these phony stories to try to explain it away. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most documented facts ever in all of history. There's just no way that it didn't happen. It's, it's absolutely proved to deny it, to suggest that, that the disciples had this plot. Come on, wouldn't one of the disciples at some point when every one of them was killed for their faith, don't you think they would go, Okay, okay, we were kidding. He's buried. It's right over here. I'll show you where it is. Of course. No one, I could see people wanting to mislead people, but why would you, why would 11 people plus hundreds more that claim that they saw him after he rose from the dead, why would they all give their lives in order to per perpetuate some kind of a hoax? I mean, it might be funny for a while, but come on, this has taken it a little too far. Somebody would have turned around, told where the body was, and that would have been all she wrote. But no one did. They were so certain that they saw him. It was so well documented. He was seen by so many people who talked to him, who saw the scars, knowing that it was him. It wasn't somebody pretending to be him. Why is somebody going to put a, put a plot together where they put holes in their own hands and in their side in order to dress up like Jesus for Halloween or something? It's just, it's ridiculous. There's no way in the world, no explanation in the world can possibly satisfy the facts that we have historically other than the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And he did. You can be certain of it. It's not something that we received by faith. It's not like 
You know, hey, people struggle with, did God really create the world in six days just by saying it? Well, we can't really reproduce that. You either believe it or you don't. But you don't have that option with the resurrection. Jesus really did rise from the dead. It's been proven beyond any kind of reasonable doubt. There's no one who's ever come up with a, an alternate explanation of how you'd have an entire religion basically start by people who claimed there were eyewitnesses to seeing Jesus after he died, to, to witnessing his resurrection and his ascension. People don't make up that kind of stuff. Oh, you know, Scientology was made up by L. Ron Hubbard, and you go, well, see, look at how many people believed him. But he was the only one who received the revelation. And not only that, he was a science fiction writer who years earlier had spoken before an, a, a convention and said, one of the greatest scams ever would be if you started your own religion. People would believe it, you could make a lot of money, and then he went ahead and did it. That's the way it works. Mormonism, the revelations to Joseph Smith, they didn't come to anyone else. They just came to him, him and Moroni, the angel. And he got his little magic glasses, and he saw it, and he basically plagiarized this book, the Book of Mormon. Now, that can be proven. That can be established. He, his claims that, that America is where the children of Israel were and that Jesus came here, and he, he made a map of all these different cities all over the U.S. that if you dug in the ground, you would find these cities. Well, they've dug in the ground. They haven't found the cities. They've never even found one archaeological discovery that would confirm his story. But you go, well, of course, because it's just one guy. It's easy for one guy to pull something like this off. But hundreds of people getting together and doing it for what purpose? Oh, I can see it in this day and age. Make a big religion, just think, and we'll make all kinds of money. But make a religion that meant that you were going to die? Like... Hey, guys, let's all get together. I mean, people do these crop circles and stuff, but they always cough it up, and it doesn't cost them anything. They lose a night's sleep, make some crop circles in a field, and everybody thinks spacemen did it. But what if a bunch of people got together and said, we saw a spaceship, and, and they said, okay, we're going to kill you, even if they saw a spaceship? They're not going to give their lives for it. They'd go, maybe I didn't, actually. There's no way, but even there, they could write a book, they could cash in. The disciples made nothing off of it. All they got was death. And yet, to their death, not one of them denied the truth of the resurrection. Take it to the bank. It happened. Deal with it. You don't have to accept Jesus. You don't have to believe everything else about him. You can believe, but it's absolutely foolish to deny that he rose from the dead. No explanation can satisfy that. Anyway, sorry. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Jesus had said, meet me at this place in Galilee. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You remember the story of Thomas. But Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission. Jesus beginning by saying, look, I have all dunamis. I have all power. I have all authority. And on the basis of that authority, I'm telling you, you go. Go in my authority and make disciples 
of all the nations. Reach out to the world. Make a difference. Share the truth of the resurrection. Share the, the truth that I, I died for people. And, and he says, as you're doing that, and baptizing them, introducing them to becoming a part of the body of Christ, teaching them to observe, teaching them to obey everything that I've told them to do. And know this, he says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you with all the power that I have to offer. Now that commission, the great commission, is something that I believe the Lord's given to each one of us. I believe that he looks at each of us and says, look, I have the power. I'm giving you a commission that your job is to communicate to people all over the world. And in Acts 1, as he said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Share my gospel. Let people know what I've done. Don't keep it a secret. Why? Because he says, my power is telling you that you can take this message and you can save people's lives. They can be delivered from the, from the prison that they live in. They can be delivered from eternal damnation. And he says, when you do this, I'll be with you. Whenever you go to share with somebody about the Lord, whenever you're kind of nervous about it and you're thinking, do I bring it up? What do I say? How do I say it? Understand this. You have within you, within your heart, the very power of the universe all power, all authority. You're going, well, what if they don't listen to me? Well, if they listen or not, you have the authority. You've been commissioned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so our job isn't to save people. Our job is to tell them, to let them know. And then as we minister to each other, and we often you know, talk about the Great Commission, but the part that's, that we usually ignore, is, some people call it the Great Omission, is the second half of it where he says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Our commission isn't just to share the gospel, to bring people into the kingdom, that's a big part of it. But the great commission extends to the way that we minister to each other, that we hold each other accountable, that we remind each other, look, you need to do what God says. I just wonder how different the world would be, how different the church would be. If when you start getting out of line, there were brothers and sisters who came alongside you and kept encouraging you to do the right thing. Come on, observe everything that he's commanded. What God, I'm not telling you what God's telling you to do, but all I can say is, if God tells you to do something, please do it. Encouraging each other that way, that's all a part of it. Because if we know the truth and we don't do the truth, it doesn't mean much of anything. He wants to change our lives. He wants to work within our hearts to make us into who and what he wants us to be. And that total package is sharing the gospel, but it's also holding each other accountable, pulling each other into line, encouraging each other. When you see someone who's discouraged, who is going through pain because of they've been a victim of doing the right thing and now they're paying for it, to go and say, hey, you're doing the right thing, man. What you're doing, I know it's bringing pain into your life. I know it's costing you plenty, but hang in there. Do what God commands you. Stick with what he shows you to do. Do the right thing. That's our commission. 
That's what we're called to do. There are some people who have a gift of evangelism who just, it's amazing. They begin to share with people and they just fall down and they're saved. I've seen one of the guys that has the most profound gift of evangelism that I know is Mike McIntosh. He's unbelievable. You go anywhere with him, he's just sharing the gospel with anyone. And he ends up getting into places that you'd never get into. He, can, he meets people. It's just amazing. God opens those doors. And he has a heart for evangelism, but he also has a gift of evangelism. That's, uh, I, of anyone I know, uh, you know, to me, Mike McIntosh has the greatest gift of evangelism of anyone I've ever seen personally. But there are some people who feel like, man, I'm always sharing the gospel and it seems like it doesn't really click. That's okay. Don't quit witnessing because you don't see results. Your commission is to go in the authority of Jesus Christ, knowing that he's with you, and tell the truth to people if they receive it or if they don't. But also, your gift may be more in the area of teaching people to observe what God has commanded. That's okay, too. You'll find your niche there. But all of these things, these are commissions that have come from, from God. And we know that we have his presence, and we know that we have his power, and we dare not shirk the responsibility that he's left us with. It's why we are still here. It's why when we get saved, we don't just instantly get zapped to heaven. Oh, there are days when I just wish that had happened. It'd be pretty cool. It'd be a great witness. Anybody want to pray? <laughs> they disappear. People might be more scared then. I don't know. But the thing is, this is why we're here. This is our commission. This is our call. And... Ultimately, as we've made our way through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, he's showed us, he's demonstrated to us the fact that Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy. Jesus was the promised Messiah. He is the one who ultimately has all power. It's demonstrated. And then what he says with that power, he says, I'm giving it to you. Let it change your life. I'm, I'm commissioning you. Let me use you. Let me use you to make a difference in the lives of others. That's our commission. That's our call. That's the ultimate purpose and goal of your life and my life if we know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for recording these stories. If you had done all this, and we believed it, then we could be saved without knowing all the details. But Lord, you painted these pictures, you, you developed these themes in order to not only help us to hear the truth, but to convince us that you really are who you say you are. Oh, how we thank you for the resurrection, for the power that came from the resurrection, that now death was conquered, the ultimate enemy was now defeated. And as we understand that we have your power, that we have your presence, Lord, help us to courageously represent you. Help us to, in our own little worlds, in our own ways, to, to step out to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples, to teach others to do what you say, to teach it not by just what we do, but to teach with our lives as they see us being obedient that they would realize that that's a good way to live. Help us to fulfill that in your presence, with your power, by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.